Welcome to this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. I'm Casey. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Marie. I'm Casey from the Women and Gender Advocacy Center. And in this episode, I will be discussing some foundational understanding, history, and some strategies in navigating roadblocks for trans survivors. Joining me for this discussion a little later on, I have a fellow colleague, Tyrell Allen, who's going to join me to help lend their perspective on some barriers for trans survivors. Knowing that the purpose of this podcast is to talk about considerations for trans survivors and their support systems, I'm not going to spend a ton of time defining trans identity. But for those of our listeners who might be new to this discussion and understanding that gender is a social construct, it's important to start here. Knowing that those considered to be in the majority are often considered in the norm, I wish you could see the size of my air quotes right now, it can be helpful to explore some definitions through the lens of social construction. For instance, if you fall in line with social expectations, you might identify as cisgender. And for folks whose sex assigned at birth and gender do not align, you might identify with the term trans. Some people will use the term trans as an umbrella term for anyone whose gender identity and sex assigned at birth differ. To add another layer to this conversation, there are also those who choose other words to express their gender. You might hear gender nonconforming or gender queer. This refers to a person who does not subscribe to mainstream definitions of gender and may reject gender in a binary form. For the purpose of this podcast, we will be using trans as an umbrella term when referencing the wider community. And when we talk about the intersection of trans and survivors of interpersonal violence, the importance of this conversation becomes clear. Over 50% of trans individuals are survivors of sexual assault. Additionally, 50% of trans survivors identify as survivors of interpersonal violence. This is a community that is disproportionately affected by violence. And spending some time unpacking that in this episode we feel is really important. So when we talk about trans rights, we are faced with the reality that the place we live in is stuck in this gender binary, meaning that as a wider culture, people are men or they are women. The same forced dichotomy happens for sexual orientation. You are either gay or you're straight. And these binary ways of thinking have been and still are deeply harmful. And then when we add the layer that gender identity and sexual orientation are often conflated, when in reality they're very separate. But in this conflation, we make gender identity invisible. Most people are familiar with sexual orientation more than they are with gender identity. And thus, it's easier to understand that someone is gay rather than that their gender is different than what we might read it as. This narrowing of identity is rooted in stereotypes that reads one's sexuality through gender presentation. An example of this might be that a feminine presenting man is read as gay. He might be, but she also might be a woman and people are reading her sexual orientation, not her gender. Another possibility is that they might be actively rejecting any gender label. This conflation of gender and sexual orientation is both complicated and harmful. It can lead to well-intentioned people assuming gender or sexual orientation by looks alone, and it is for the sole purpose of placing labels and boxes on people. It actively resists the fluidity for the sake of social order, specifically so that those in the dominant identity can feel more comfortable. If you're unsure of how to gender someone, you might consider asking what gender pronouns they use, or using they, them, their pronouns until they tell you differently. If you've been paying any attention to social justice theories, you know that oppression is created and supported through systems meaning that oppression can happen on an individual level, an institutional level, and a systematic level. 
An example of individual level of oppression that trans survivors might face is constantly being misgendered. Not only is being misgendered invalidating of trans identity and exhausting to constantly correct, it can also be much more complex for trans folks with trauma backgrounds. They often have to decide, do I correct this person and name my gender, which potentially puts me at risk for greater violence, or do I remain silent as a means of self-protection, but not be authentic to who I actually am? The intersection of survivor and trans identity make many of these systems oppression harder to face. In fact, part of the reason that sexual assault rates are so high in the trans community is as a direct result of oppression and transphobia. For some survivors, outing their gender identity might be directly related to their assault, meaning that their victimization might have come at the hands of a transphobic person trying to prove gender through sexual violence. To further this idea is an example of systemic oppression. Our court systems still allow for something called the trans panic defense to be used in every state except for California and Illinois. That means someone can claim that they caused violence to a trans person simply because they realized they were trans. Furthermore, trans folks are not protected by non-discrimination clauses in many states, meaning it's legal to discriminate against trans people. These ideas contribute to higher rates of violence in the trans community. This idea affects survivors of interpersonal violence in deep ways. It makes trusting systems like law enforcement, who purport themselves to be a service for the people, almost impossible. By people, do they really mean some people? It can be hard to trust police and district attorneys with the survivor story. Will trans panic defense work? Will it cause more pain to speak up? Will speaking up actually put someone in more danger if the wider community finds out? Hopefully, you can start to see how some of these real and valid questions can create many barriers for trans survivors. For instance, what does it look like for a trans survivor to find a therapist or a doctor that's both trauma-informed and knowledgeable about trans healthcare? In many places, it's hard to find just one of those things, and both being in one person is next to impossible. The World Professional Association for Transgender Health has issued a document available in 18 languages that sets a standard of care for a trans community. But the most recent edition that I could find is from 2001, and there are still many medical facilities that have yet to adopt the practices it outlines. There's really no perfect system. Even systems that are set up to help highlight safety for individuals are often flawed. For instance, there's something called the Campus Pride Index. It's a website listing LGBT-friendly colleges and universities which was developed in 2001. And if you look it up, they rate colleges and universities based on a five-point scale. CSU has four out of five. And how they come up with that is that they look at the variety of factors that a university says it does. All things from housing policies to recruitment retention efforts. Seems pretty great that there's a resource like this out there. And hey, four out of five's not too shabby. And it also leaves room for improvement. However, it's not fail-safe. It doesn't take in any narrative from students attending these universities about their experience. It's only accounting for what the university says it does. It's unclear how they actually check to see if the university is doing what it says it's doing. This can be problematic for transgender students. Using tools such as these to gauge whether or not a prospective university might be a safe place to get an education might be misleading for some folks. And even if that university is a safe space, do they have the resources on campus that can help trans survivors cope with the stretches of college life? This leads to what do trans survivor spaces look like for healing? 
Traditional women's centers on campuses have historically been rooted in second wave white women feminism, and that particular brand of feminism was also quite transphobic, not leaving a lot of space for transgender individuals to feel safe and utilizing that service. Even at the WGAC, we have had long struggled to provide support groups in a way that made everyone feel safe in discussing trauma. We usually did that through a gender-specific space. Our support group was for women. We offered that if enough male survivors came forward that we would open a group for them as well. But where did that leave our trans students? Were they still having to choose a group based on a gender binary? So last year, we decided to have an all-gender approach to our support group and open up the spaces for all survivors. And what we witnessed is that it worked well for our students. We plan to continue using this approach from here forward. Broadening the discussion of trauma-specific resources out one more step, we can take a look at community not-for-profits, where we see this dynamic playing out often. For instance, how many domestic violence shelters have a trans-inclusive program? And if the program allows for their shelter, meaning that they're trans-inclusive, what does the reception look like for a trans survivor from other residents? Quite often, domestic violence shelters are not a safe space for members of our transgender community. So what can you do to help navigate these barriers and systems? Many trans survivors look to online communities for support if they're unable to find it on their campus. Sites like YouTube, Tumblr, and Reddit all have grown to be spaces that people can learn, grow, and find support around identities. We step outside the virtual world and into actually engaging in services. There are other strategies that can help as well. Who do people in your community trust as a reliable resource? What does representation look like in their space, on their social media? Do the words they use to describe things include you and all of your identities? Can you take a friend with you the first time you visit so you know you won't be alone? You can ask questions of the resource about their approach and competence around your salient identities. You can also ask to switch providers if you're not getting the care that you require from them. To help add some additional context and to flesh out some of these ideas more fully, I would like to introduce you all to Tyrell Ellen. Tyrell works here on campus with our campus activities office, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Before we get started with the interview, would you mind sharing with our listeners some of your salient identities? Sure. So I identify as Black. I identify as a femme, as trans. Um, I also identify as fat. That's also very salient to me. I grew up in a working class family and I have a master's degree. Thank you for sharing that with us. I really appreciate that. So in your opinion, what are some barriers that trans survivors of interpersonal violence might face? Yeah, so I think about a few things. Uh, I think about inadequate training and preparation for professionals who are charged with doing some of the work to support mm -hmm. survivors. I think about um, uncaptured or ignored stories or data about trans lives. I think about processes, paperwork, programs that don't actually acknowledge or support trans folks. So forms that may have like a binary gender option and things like that. In particular, because when I think about marginalized communities, some folks may not automatically see themselves in a service, right? And so they need to see some kind of messaging that lets them know that this is a safe space for them. Um, I also think about processes and programs that can't hold folks holistically, right? So um, I think about when I am seeking a service, 
how can it hold me as a trans person, but how can it also hold me as a person of color, mm-hmm. right? And doing the work to actually acknowledge me holistically. Yeah, that's a really important point because I don't think we have a skill set as a service community to really do a lot of that mm-hmm. work really well at this point. Hopefully that gets better. As we do things like this, as, as we talk about things like this on podcasts, so totally. people can, practitioners can listen and other survivors can know that they're not alone. So I set up this idea earlier in the episode that there's this confusion and sometimes conflation of sexual orientation and gender identity. And I know that can be a little heady for folks to wrap their head around that concept. Would you mind sharing some ways that you have witnessed this concept showing up in the lives of trans folks? So the concept is called compulsory heterogenderism, um, coined by Z. Nicolazzo. Um, And when I think about this concept, I think about the ways that gender is dismissed or incorrectly explained through sexuality. So in my case, I identify both as queer and femme. And I think about how for a long time, my femininity was explained away like by my sexuality Mm -hmm. almost, when in fact, they're two completely separate identities to me. Um, and the ways in which people would almost ignore um, the femininity and or, um, again, dismiss it on the basis that I am queer or gay. That can land really heavy, mm-hmm. too, and, mm-hmm. and just become exhausting as you navigate, try to navigate life just like anybody's trying to do. And then having to constantly explain identity is just exhausting. Similar in terms of like the emotional labor that comes with some of this is this idea that their relationship with their body is really complex, that they struggle with this question of feeling certain ways about their body and not being able to name if that complexity comes from trauma, if that complexity comes with their trans identity, or if that complexity comes with both. Do you have any thoughts that you might like to share on how bodies show up and how that can get complicated for trans survivors? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for me, any sort of resentment or shame or confusion that I experience about my body often comes from the perceptions of others, right? So as a trans femme person, I think about passing as feminine or not. I think about how people perceive a larger black body that was assigned male at birth and how it may not read is feminine for folks Mm -hmm. and some of those pieces um, cause some emotional burden if you will as a survivor I think about how a larger black body assigned male at birth isn't often seen as one that can be harmed right especially by sexual violence and I think all of these narratives make it hard for me to come out both as a survivor and as a trans person and it just takes a lot of energy to not let other people rob me of my truth essentially Mm -hmm. there's some coping mechanisms that you use to help um, just the emotional labor that you put into having to explain yourself to other people or mm-hmm. like just some days I'm sure you don't want to, but how do you like totally. set some boundaries for yourself to navigate that? A lot of it is truly rooted in the relationships that I have and the, and the friends and the support network that I've built for myself and having folks who, um, both understand what I experience, but also can, you know, have my back when needed. So if that's in person, um, holding other folks accountable, if that's a person that I can, you know, text and say, hey, I've just had a really long day and or like oh, just people are really drawing me and I can, you know, check in with them and they can sort of um, affirm me and remind me of who I am when this world um, is set on making me forget. Yeah, yeah. It's so essential to figure out what works for you Mm -hmm. 
and for each individual listening to this podcast about how, like how do you navigate and and build up some protections for yourself to enter a world that's really messed up, right? Totally. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us. So kind of along that same line, in terms of self care and um, and and building up some strategies, what are some resources that you have used or found helpful in navigating? spaces mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um i think about a lot of the resources that i do i utilize are for um queer and trans people of color and so a lot of those are pretty rooted in that um there is a facebook group it's a closed group called um cutie pop colorado um and in that group there's a resource there um listed it's the colorado therapist of color google sheet um that helps folks identify um cutie pop therapists who well not necessarily cutie pop but more so um therapists of color in general who Mm -hmm. live in the colorado area um and makes them more easily accessible there's also um a national queer and trans therapist of Color Network that was founded by Erica Woodland, um, who's a social worker based in Oakland, California. Um, I also uh, go to websites like thebodyisnotanapology.com, everydayfeminism.com. I mean, some of these spaces are just really cool um, and informative websites that have lots of information. Um, some things in particular that I found interesting were articles that they have that really talk about like entitlement Mm -hmm. right and its relationship with violence and uh encouraging accountability for men and masculinity in general um for those of us who are into data as a method (laughs) of change um there was a 2015 u.s transgender survey report um that captures the lives of about almost 28,000 respondents i Mm -hmm. believe who identify as trans across the country and it really captures different aspects of their life um, holistically. I also am a huge fan of Janet Mock. Um, her memoirs, Redefining Realness and Surpassing Certainty, um, really helped me understand who I am as a person, as a trans person, as a survivor. Um, I also follow the work of Alok Vyad Manan, who is a gender nonconforming writer and performance artist who's based in New York City. Their work is incredible. Um, I also watch shows like My House on Viceland and pose on FX. So just things to help me remind me of who I am um, again when I am surrounded by a world that just doesn't mirror me in the way that it should. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of those resources that you just mentioned are pretty new um, that we're really starting to see this identity showing up more in social media spaces Mm -hmm. and and TV shows um, in ways that really help with visibility Mm-hmm. Um, in ways that we weren't seeing even last year or two years ago. Totally, Those are all really great external resources from CSU. We also have some really good ones on campus that I want to share with all of our listeners too. One of those resources is our Pride Resource Center, and they've been working for our trans students since its inception in 1998. As a center, they provide a space on campus for folks to express both gender identity and sexual orientation. Their staff are some of the few people on campus I have heard genderqueer students trust and seek out for support. Their website, theprideresourcecenter.colostate.edu, has a section called Trans Survivors on Campus, which offers information, resources such as gender-inclusive bathroom map, um, which they also have period products in all of our gender-inclusive bathrooms. You can also find on their website information about how to change one's preferred name within the CSU systems. However, birth names will still appear on websites and university documents. 
Additionally, the Pride Resource Center works with our housing program on campus to provide an all-gender housing option for our students. So we've got some good things going on within our Pride Resource Center, and that staff there is really seen as being supportive for students on our campus. In addition, we do some good work through our health committee here on campus, too. We have a group called the CSU Trans Health Committee, and it has representatives from our medical, counseling, psychiatrist staff, and professional staff for the Pride Resource Center. This committee works to ensure that all health-related services on campus are informed about trans issues. And they work as a team to assist any students who are interested in transitioning. They also work with students who are not interested in transitioning but still need informed healthcare professionals. The other thing to note here is that the general student insurance plan for CSU supports hormone replacement therapies and gender confirmation surgeries. So Tyrell, I just have one other question for you um, as we wrap up our show today. Um, I really want to thank you for your time um, and helping me kind of craft the message of the show. Absolutely. Um, as we wrap up, do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? I want to say to trans folks, you are real and valid despite this world's inability to and refusal to see you. To cis folks, cisgender folks, I urge you to keep learning and holding others accountable to do the same. Um, you didn't necessarily create a society that privileges cis folks, but you do benefit from it while trans folks suffer and die from it. Um, to trans folks of color, I see you. I love you. We are our ancestors' wildest dreams. We've always been here and will always be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So that's all for our episode of We Believe You, Advocacy, Resources, and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. That's W-G-A-C at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. For more information about advocacy in the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in today's podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.